Hello lifers and welcome into the living room. It is season two, episode two of Because Life Can Be a Niche Podcast. We're so happy to have you in with us. Thank you for listening. If you're listening wherever you get your podcast and thank you for watching. If you're watching on YouTube, we appreciate that. Please like, share, comment, let us know what you think. It really means a lot to us. You guys know how we start every episode. I have to give my tea of the episode and my tea of the episode I'm so excited about is because it is a black owned business and it is a mompreneur and uh, she has her own tea precious Scott get at her on Instagram at precious Scott um, but the tea y'all I just gotta tell you this is um this is not a teacup but it's my cup and I love it and the tea that I have in it or that I'm putting in it mom power you guys this uh, is one of my favorite teas and I will tell you I have my teas that I drink in the morning and those that I'll drink like late afternoon and at night this one is actually one that I really like to drink when I'm winding down the evening and I'll tell you why it's because it has um, organic herbs fennel seeds peppermint leaf stinging nettle leaf chamomile flowers rose petals lavender bulbs buds skullcap raspberry leaf catnip leaf and flower and I mean, it's a loose leaf tea, and I told y'all I'm a loose leaf kind of girl, and I have really just enjoyed winding down. When when she says mom power, she means it. I mean, this is just a relaxing tea, but it also has the flavor profile that I really enjoy because it has a little bit of everything, but these are actually very good for you. Um, the, the lavender, the peppermint, the fennel seeds are all good properties for your body as well. So treat your body good get yourself some mom power tea from precious scott so proud of this sister and so glad to share a tea of hers with you and um and with that we will go ahead and jump right on into why we probably all need a cup of tea uh, with the subject today i have a very special guest uh mr bobby newman and uh we sat down and we talked about something that all of us uh, at some point in our lives, we've either faced it with friends or family, ourselves, or it's something that we're avoiding or hoping that we don't have to deal with, and that's drug and alcohol abuse. And um, Bobby is just, I'll tell you a little bit about him because I, I really just want to get into the show so that you can hear what he has to say. But um, Bobby is a drug and alcohol intervention specialist. And uh, he says that helping families save the lives of their addicted loved ones by guiding them through an intervention for drug or alcohol addiction is one of the most gratifying feelings a person could ever have. And when you get to, when you hear Bobby in just a few moments, uh, you will see how passionate he is about this and how much, uh, how he connects with people and how much you can glean from this conversation it is an important conversation and a serious one and i uh, will have all of his contact information in the show notes because not only is he an intervention specialist but he is also just a great all-around guy and uh, and available and, and has made himself available um, to you as well so um, there are books uh, there are courses on Amazon when you hear about it he'll share a little bit about that and um, he has different sessions and the book on Amazon is the secrets to successful recovery but it is I'm gonna put all this in the show notes because I really want you to have um, access to it it's just one click away if you know someone who needs it please share this with them uh, and without further ado 
I just want to uh, say welcome into the living room for this very serious conversation about drug and alcohol abuse with special guest Bobby Newman. So welcome our guest, uh, Bobby Newman. You are in for a really powerful, impactful conversation here. Um, and we're so glad that, that Bobby, that you're joining us today. So without further ado, uh, Bobby, let's just talk a little bit about your story and, and who you are and, and just tell us, you know, how did you get here as an interventionist and as a counselor and, and the, someone who's a real expert in this area? Well, you know, I became expert about drugs because I was addicted to drugs for about 15 years. And I don't know if I try to be funny, but sometimes it works. But I actually went through a rehab program about a little over 20 years ago, almost 21 years ago. And, um, you know, it was after abusing drugs, I think from the time that I was probably started drinking heavily at about the time I was 15 years old, but it wasn't necessarily a but at the time it was just a high school kid. I mean, not just a high school kid, but we would go out and just, you know, go fishing or go camping or, you know, hang out with our friends and would, you know, inevitably would definitely abuse alcohol. And, you know, then it became a, a bad habit, but, uh, and then I moved on to marijuana and then it was method when I went to college to play football, uh, you know, got uh, introduced to methamphetamine. And so I um, just seemed, I, I had a substance abuse problem from the time I was 15 years old. Now, becoming an addict, I, you know, I, I, by the time I was 35 years old, I was looking at seven years in the penitentiary and, and uh, about $300,000 in fines. And mm -hmm. so I went through rehab and said, I had a, fortunately had an opportunity to go into a program and get sober. And I've been sober now since, um, well, a little over 20 years. And I, I wanted to educate kids about what I'd learned about how a person becomes addicted to drugs. Now there's a lot of drug prevention programs out there that like dare and other things that will, you know, they'll talk to kids about what drugs are and what to look for and things like that. But how a person becomes addicted is what I have found that most kids will are most likely to listen to because now, you know, um, number one, scare tactics don't really work. Uh, you have to give the kid the information and so they can make a decision for themselves. And, you know, and we, you know, so I started out doing drug prevention and drug education in schools. And then I kind of went out from there um, and started into admissions counseling, getting people into a treatment program. Then I started working with aftercare after they completed the program. And then I went out and started a, a drug prevention program in Hawaii for, and, um, and then I got to where I was actually, working with other treatment programs back here in the mainland. And they would ask me, we, we've got a family over there. We need them to come to the mainland for treatment. So I would go and do interventions. And I happened to, I developed a knack for it. And, uh, you know, having worked in the admissions department and, you know, in, in rehabilitation for the number of years that I had, I had I was exposed to other interventionists that had, you know, successful ways of doing things. And so I was kind of like able to take, what I could use of theirs that would work and then, um, you know, develop my own method, which is, you know, I don't necessarily know that I have uh, anything drastically different than a lot of folks do. There are, I have developed some ways of, you know, being kind of fluid and not stuck in one way of doing an intervention and handling the uh, things that come up 
during the intervention process and become very adept at that. Um, you know, but anyway, so that's how I, that's how I evolved into doing interventions and, and starting my own company. Matter of fact, I, I, I actually thought about doing something else about four or five years ago and I, I, I got pulled back in. People kept calling me and going, Hey, we've got a family here. You know, you got to go get this guy. And, you know, and then I kind of, well, I might as well just, every time I would try to venture off into something else, people would keep pulling me back in. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. so that means you must have a, a pretty good success rate. If, if yeah. That- and I would love to be able to tell you that it was a hundred percent, but unfortunately I can't, I would say that, uh, you know, I'm about 85 to 90% uh, successful at getting the person into treatment. Um, the hard part is preparing the family for what they need to do. They often need to make, break behaviors and habits that they've had for years and, uh, and, you know, and things have to run their course before the person will eventually reach back. But, uh, you know, the, the thing of it is most addicts don't want to be drug addicts. They actually, most of them don't. Some people, you know, you know, there's, there's certain fundamental things that you need to be successful with an intervention that need to be, you know, and, uh, if those things don't exist, then it's really t- difficult to turn it around. But at least you can somewhat disconnect the family from being as affected as they have been. Like, you know, I've no families that have had their loved ones living in their house and are full blown drug addicts. And the person hasn't worked in 15 years and they're, you know, 35 years old, you know, IV heroin user living at home and, you know, they can't figure out why the parents says, well, I just don't know why he won't get treatment. Well, (laughs) there's a good reason why he's got a a roof over his head and money and food. And and not that you you would want your loved one to not have those things, but you're feeding the addiction is what you're doing. So, you know, anyway, there's, I I don't want to, you know, that's, there's a lot to that. (laughs) Exactly. And I I want to, touch on as, as much as possible because I know our our listeners want to know more. Um, what struck me that you said in the very beginning was that you are recovering, you have recovered yourself and uh-huh. that you started at 15 um, yeah. with alcohol. Um, how did you get access to that? Because I think that's probably something us mamas want to know. It's like, well, we let our kids go places and do things and you just, you know, you can't really control when they leave or when they're not within your sight. So how well, did that happen? Well, you know, I think the first time that I actually got drunk was I was 11, mm-hmm. but I, I kind of was like, you know, you could drink one beer or two beers and get drunk at 11, you know, <laughs> when I was 15, we would, so I literally drank one or two beers. We were at a, uh, I'm sorry about that. Um, we were at a, um, uh, um, we used to live in South, Southern Oklahoma. My sisters would go to uh, barrel races. We'd go to rodeos a lot. So they would have a big ice chest of soda pop and beer all in the same ice chest. So we, as a kid, we just walk in there and act like we were going to get a, you know, pop and we'd get a beer. <laughs> it's peeking out, you know, where nobody's looking. Um, and then when I was about 15 or 16, I, I grew up again, a small town in Southern Oklahoma. And, uh, uh, you know, we would go fishing and we'd have our older brother or older sister or cousin or somebody go get, you know, 
can you go get us a beer? At that time, you know, it was, uh, I'll tell everybody how old I was that you could buy a beer at the age of 18. So, you know, uh, but I can remember the day that they changed the law to 21. The day after, I was just as drunk as I was the day before. <laughs> you know, so I was, I, I remember laughing, going, boy, I'm sure glad they, they, they changed that law. Gluck, 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 gluck. So um, there's family and friends, you know, is usually where it comes from. And, you know, the thing of it is, is like people uh, should consider the underage drinking is a huge, I mean, you can look this information up. It costs billions of dollars a year and all the things that underage drinking, the, the, the trickle down effects, you know, uh, fatalities and accidents under teenage pregnancy. And, you know, all, there's a lot of statistics that go along with the, you know, and they look at the societal impact that it has and it's, you know, billions of dollars a year. And then, so people would, you know, we then now we have marijuana that's legalizing everywhere. And, you know, people, oh, you know, and I keep telling people the, the substance abuse for teens is going to go, I mean, for marijuana, it's going to go up. Oh, you don't know that. I'm like, well, yeah, I do. And then they would always want to compare it to alcohol. Well, it's not as bad as alcohol. I said, well, alcohol, should, well, I hope not because alcohol kills about half a million people a year. So we hope it doesn't get as bad, but it's going to get worse because people are going to be irresponsible. You know, I mean, there's, they don't, a lot of times they don't even realize that they, maybe they're having a family function and uh, you know, Hey, uh, can you go get me a beer out of the ice chest? Right. The kid goes to get the beer out of the ice chest and it, it, it maybe it's just a nice gesture, but at the same time, it's like, it's a different, in the, to the kid's eyes, it's like, well, oh, now you don't, you want me to be irresponsible. And a lot of, a lot of people don't even realize that's against the law. I mean, you can't have, you, you, you know, I actually, as a prevention specialist, I've learned the laws of, you know, when I was in Hawaii, I would go, you know, in, in Hawaii, you can't have a, 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 somebody under the age handling alcohol. So, you know, families would send their, oh, give me a beer out of the ice chest. Well, that's, they're actually breaking the law right there. You know, and, and it may seem innocent enough, but there's just things that, um, you know, it's confusing to a kid. And I'm not blaming anything, my substance abuse problem on my parents. I'm just saying that, you know, we have to think about these things. We have to be, we have to be smart about, you know, the message and the example that we want to set for our, our loved ones, you know, and our, our children, especially. So. Exactly. You're, you're right, because that's something that's so, uh, I guess, innocent, because I remember going to get a drink for, you know, at family functions, just because, yeah. you know, I was the fastest, like, hey, go in the house, run in the house and do such and such. And you don't yeah. think about that in, in that way that it could also lead to other things later. Yeah. What, what, Bobby, what would you say? is something that parents should be on the lookout for or aware of that, you know, may be an indicator that, that your child might be susceptible to or even engaging in drinking or perhaps drugs? Well, you know, that's a good follow-up question to what we were just talking about, because I certainly want to, wouldn't want to give somebody the wrong idea. I mean, those are innocent things that we're talking about as far as setting examples and going to get it. But at the same time, if you have a kid 
that is susceptible of that, which, you know, is kind of what you're asking, you know, kids that don't have a purpose in life or a drive or an ambition to actually accomplish things, um, they, that's the one, those are the ones that are most susceptible, you know, they get bored very easily, you know, and I'll, I'll get, I have a, I have a 29 year old son. He'll be 30 in November. And, uh, and then I have, I started, started my life over again. And my wife is, uh, you know, my wife and I had a little boy, we he'll be 11 in September and, you know, he loves, there's certain things that he really loves, mm-hmm. but at the same time he gets bored kind of easy. And he, so I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm very curious as to, for him, uh, you know, when he's 15, 16 years old, where, you know, kind of like in his developmental stages, because I'm keeping an eye on him. I mean, I, I just, I, I, we, once he gets interested in something, he's very interested. He's very smart, you know, so I, to, to go, to fall back and answer your question, it's typically very smart kids who don't really have any like specific desire to accomplish or, or desire or, or interest in things. Right. So like if you you've got I'll give you an example with the I go to this fitness center or fitness class and it's more of a specific type of uh, physical training. But at part of that, they have a pole vaulting. Uh, you know, they train people to pull kids to pole vault. People will travel several hours to come here to learn how to he's an Olymp- the guy who started the place was an Olympic pole vaulter. And there's kids, I mean, you know, high school girls and high school boys that are learning how to be pole vaulters and they're traveling a long way to learn how to do that. And so I would venture to say those kids are less at risk of abusing drugs because they have a high interest in doing, accomplishing and doing something, you know, mm-hmm. and statistically speaking between the ages of 12 to 17, not just because they're pole vaulting, you could be playing the violin. You know, you could have a strong interest in playing the violin or a strong interest in painting or a strong interest in cars. Or, you know, if you have if you're interested in something, you're less likely to let something interfere with that. Now, if you got a kid that's bored and not necessarily interested in something, somebody comes along with some, you know, weed or now I was interested in playing football and basketball, you know, but I was also interested in partying on the weekends with my friends. So, um, and I don't think my parents actually knew how bad, what was going on. I look back and, but so I always try to, you know, relate it to my own experience, but, and also what I'm seeing, but I, the, if you can keep a kid from using drugs, I had a friend of mine that ran a, a website, had these referral, these websites for treatment, and he would get thousands upon thousands of, of leads for people looking at And one of the questions he would ask, was what age did you start using drugs and usually between 12 and 17 and he would he he like did like 10,000 of these leads and he looked at, at the numbers and he said like 87 percent of them started between 12 to 17 years of age right so, so that in his mind this was unofficial it's not like an official study or anything but in his mind oh so if you can keep a kid off of drugs between the age of 12 and 17, you've got an 87% chance that he's not going to become a drug addict. 
right? That was his logic on that. So, um, and, I, and I find that to be true. That doesn't mean that people later in life can't become addicted to drugs through taking drugs for some type of surgery or some kind of physical or mental problems they have. It just means they're less likely. Um, uh, so, but again, keeping it, so keeping it to, to what a per, parents should look for is who they're hanging around with, you know, and, you know, that's that old saying of who, you know, birds of a feather flock together. <laughs> yeah, my grandmother used to tell me you are who you run with. And I thought, oh, you know, what does my grandmother know? But she seems to be wiser and wiser the older I get. <laughs> She's a very wise woman. <laughs> and, but, you know, who they're hanging around with, you know, and uh, what they're doing and how they're spending their time. If they're spending a, time on, a lot of time on video games and and things like that. There's no strong interest in, in, in accomplishing things. They're not looking down the road and like, okay, you know, um, you know, what about college or what about like, what am I going to do when I get out of school or, or something like that? You know, if they're not doing those type of things then the likely there's a susceptibility there. So, so, yeah. so basically keeping your kids active and involved and busy it's yeah. actually a, a good thing, not too busy, but definitely making sure that they have outlets and activities. It sounds yeah. like that kind of helps Yes. to protect them a little bit. Yeah. I, I tell you, I got my um, son uh, who, um, I don't know how to make that. Anyway, sorry about that. But oh, yeah. um, my son who, we've got this coach, I've got this coach and he runs a youth fitness for youth. And those guys down there, it's so funny because it used because when I was a playing sports, I mean, the coaches were like on you. I mean, they were just get up in your grill. And it was like, you know, then my nephew came through and it was, they were a little bit, you know, they had my nephew. Anyway, it just seemed like they couldn't do as much. They could, they, there was a little bit like of this, um, uh, you know, we couldn't handle these kids with kid gloves. And I'm like, well, these guys here at this fitness center, they don't, <laughs> they're from the old school and they is like, and they run them and they, 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 snug, you know, they're, it's friendly and the kids like it. They're, they, they're there and the kids want to be there. And so I've got my son involved in that and he likes it, but the coach is coach will run him. Now, you know, he'll, but you know, at the end of the, at the end of the thing, they're like, you know, he works his tail off, but he, you know, it's, it's quite, uh, I was pretty impressed because when he comes out of there, he is worn out. There's no <laughs> energy for, you know, shenanigans. He's like, oh, he, and, but he goes there, you know, he, it's three nights a week. So anyway, yeah, keep them busy and keep them involved and give them some opportunity and, and expect them to, you know, just because, oh, I'm not interested. Well, that's not, if you don't, I'm, you know, it's like my son, well, I'll find something that, you know, you'll be, you know, I'll find something for you. So you're much more likely going to like it if you find something, because if I find something, you know, we're going to be out here pulling weeds and, you know, yeah. So you figure out what you're going to be interested in. Be, you'll be better off. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Anyway, I, I'm so I, I give long answers. So anyway, I hope it's helpful and what you're looking No, you know. it is helpful. I'm, I'm glad that you do give long answers and yeah. examples because I, I think that helps us to kind of see 
a yeah. bigger picture of, of how things can unfold or yeah. how they can happen. Uh, one thing that uh, you mentioned was uh, when we were talking before the show that is um, you deal with people from all walks of life. Uh-huh. And sometimes we tend to think, well, you know, my kid is in the best school system or we're doing these things or we're out here in the suburbs or we live out in the country. Nobody can get to us. But that's not the what you share that you deal with kids from all areas. So it, it really I, I guess it doesn't matter if they are in maybe places that more, maybe more high risk or not in terms well, of. I, I've had, you know, and I, I guess fundamentally, the, you know, being in like certain areas, you're definitely going to be higher risk. You know, I think it comes down to mentors. It comes down to, uh, you know, the individual kid, because, you know, I mean, just because I've seen a lot of great people come out of high, high, high risk, you know, high risk areas. And then I've seen like kids that have come from, um, you know, like rural communities and, and then they go, go to college and then a bunch of bad decisions get made <laughs> at right. college. You know, I just, actually a friend of mine that I've known since I was 11 years old, she's like from a, she's like superintendent of schools, a very rural area in Oklahoma and her son, great kid in high school, you know, great kid period. But he, when he got to college, there was some bad decisions made and, and uh, anyway, we got him turned around. He's doing great now, but, uh, you know, it just came out of left field for her. And, and then, you know, I had a, uh, you know, another family I'm working with down in, down in uh, Texas and San Antonio area. And they, same thing, her daughter went, you know, went to school and she got me. And they said, we never experienced any of this uh, when in high school. But the good thing about it is as soon as they, did realize something was going on they they jumped on it and they were like all on it like they were going to handle it mm-hmm. which is a lot of times families won't do that they'll let it go on for years the next thing you know the person's 35 years old and, you know it's just like you know bad <laughs> so exactly I, and i i'm glad you said that because that leads into my next question how what do you do like if you suspect that your child is already using or Mm -hmm. that they are maybe dealing with an addiction Mm -hmm. what as parents what do you do because we just want to love our kids through stuff but sometimes Mm -hmm. loving them through can actually make you code codependent where you're just allowing them to live in the house till they're 35 (laughs) you know kind of thing so where do we come in as parents? Well, you can you can never be, you know, I hear this a lot with, well, they're just smoking weed. Well, you know, the today's weed, even when I used to smoke it, it wasn't good, even when, you know, at the low percentage that it was, like three, maybe 5% THC. Today's marijuana is 10 to 15 to 20% higher than that. And it's a THC is a psychoactive drug. So the and you know and I had a DEA agent from uh, about ten years ago. I'm so sorry. Um, That's okay. We're real on this show. You're fine. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I thought I had that turned off. I turned my phone off, and I thought I. Uh, anyway, the um, um, 
where was I at? I had, um, where was I? I, I lost track of where I was talking, talking about. about anyway. I think about a DEA agent is what you were going to oh, say. Oh yeah. A friend of mine who did a study, a breakdown of marijuana, you know, because we, you know, you, we find that people that smoke weed, it's like impossible to convince them that it's bad, you know? And I used to smoke weed. It's like, in, you might as well go, you know, beat your head against the wall. I don't even try it anymore. I okay. just like, okay, well, you know, here's what I know about it. And you make up your own mind. I, I'm pretty certain it's not going to work out for you. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, there are a percentage of people that they can go in and smoke weed and, and, um, you know, and, uh, and they can go in and excel and do things in life. And, but there's also a percentage of people that will, try harder drugs or maybe it lowers their motivation, lowers their ambition and things like that. So it's, it, you know, it, it's like, so anyway, I, that, that's a whole nother story that I could get into, but uh, you, you, I would say you never, you know, if your position is, look, I don't agree with smoking weed, you know, so I don't want, you know, and, and I don't agree with uh, uh, you know, if you've got a substance abuse problem with alcohol, I mean, if you're uh, or anything, uh, you have to be in complete disagreement with it. and you have to say, look, that's not going to stand. You're going to handle this, right? If you're going to be, there's certain rules and regulations that, you know, you got to, you have to abide by in, you know, this household. And if you're going to go do that, then you can, you know, people, I, I'm 18. I can do whatever I want. You certainly can. You can certainly do what you want, but you don't, you're not, you don't, you don't get to do it here <laughs> in my house. You get to do it out there. You get, well, you know, sometimes, um, you know, if, well, if I kick him out, he's just going to get worse. Well, he, he, maybe he's creating this problems for himself because he doesn't have enough problems. Mm. You know, if you, you are solving all these problems. Well, what do you mean? Well, maybe he should have the problem of where he's going to live and how he's going to pay his bills and where he's going to eat and, you know, his clothes. And once he has to start figuring those things out, then maybe he won't be susceptible to having to, you know, breaking the rules in your house because you have to maintain your own integrity and you have to maintain your own rules, you know, and that's, that's just the bottom line. You can't, somebody else starts making bad decisions and you're only going to lower your own standards. That's the only way this is going. You're, you're, you're not going to, you know, you have to be in complete disagreement with it. It doesn't have to be a knockdown, a fight. It's just to say, no, you know, that's not going to happen. You know, I, I, I don't know if my wife and I both went through rehabilitation programs, her, I went through, like I said, over 20 years ago, I think hers was like 16 or 17 years ago. We weren't together at the time. We didn't start dating until even years after later, we met at a, at a, you know, while working at a treatment center, but we'd both been sober for several years. And, uh, but I guarantee you, if I started out, you know, even staying out late at night <laughs> consistently without a, a good reason, you know, or even her, it's like, we, there's just certain behaviors that we expect and we don't run it. We're pretty, you know, I have a, a my, you know, it, she's pretty, uh, as far as that goes, she's very, um, lax on certain rules and things like that but it's the same there, there are certain things that will just not be tolerated you know it's just because that's not why we're together we're together because she's a certain type of person and i'm a certain type of person and we don't we don't vary from that so as a parent you have to have your standards and expect that person to meet them it doesn't have to be a rigorous hard you know it could be fun you know make it where it's fun and they've accomplished something and when they do something really cool 
you reward them for that. When they do something really bad, you do you do the opposite of reward. Okay. <laughs> you know, you, you, you and then, then you're gonna get more. And what happens in families a lot, especially if there's kids, there's several kids, the ones that's doing the worst will get the most attention. And the yes. ones that will doing great don't get the attention and they suffer. And the, the truth is, is that if you put your attention on the ones that are doing well and saying, you know, Johnny or Jim or Bill or, or Sally or whatever, you know, if you, you know, yeah, we'll definitely help you out, but you know, you're not making the best choices. So we need to figure out how to help you make better choices and make better decisions so you can get what you want out of life and then we'll help you. But until then we're going to put our, or, or you know, we're going to invest the beans where the beans are going to get our greatest return. You know, so that's what happens. It typically is the other way around. And it's not, it's hard not to do. I mean, you, you, I don't even know, even people could read it and go, yep, I need to know. I, that's what I need to do. And then turn right around. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> not be able to do it. So. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. Um, I, I had a guest on the show not too long ago and we were talking about, um, you know, how to have the conversation about sex with your children. And, and how we address that. And, and she said the same thing. Uh, she said, you know, usually we put the most attention in the bad behavior. If a kid, you know, goes over and, and slaps the other kid, then, you know, we don't even check on the kid that slapped. We immediately hone in on, you know, addressing the behavior of that kid who did the slapping. And, and that, that is so true. We just, I, I guess, because as parents, you want to fix things. Yeah, and if you see something breaking or broken, that's where your attention will tend to go. I know that, and I have consciously ever since she shared that story, I'm like, let me think about that when, right. the, when the boys get into their little rock'em sock'ems. Let me think about where I'm putting the attention first, right? And then still uh, addressing that. So, I guess that's probably, uh, I guess it leads to the next question for you, Bobby is. How do you know when you need an intervention or how soon would you suggest someone call someone like you and say, I, I need an intervention? Because a lot of times it's to the point where everybody in the community knows that this, that your kid has an addiction and, and you don't even, you're not even aware or you're, you have blinders. Right. Well, it's, that's true. Um, the, it's never too soon to do an intervention. It's always winds up being either too late, you know, some accident or some, you know, years of, you know, my 29 year old son who's doing wonderful, just recently got married, lives in Miami, was driving a sports car, you know, around living a single life in Miami. Now he's not living the single life, but he's still in Miami doing his thing. And, you know, he's got a plan. He, he's got like, he's looking down the road and like, you know, as far as having children and, you know, how he wants things to be set up and things like that. Um, and so he's been pretty, you know, uh, cautious in that regard. But when he was 14, this kid was just all, you know, he was headed for incarceration. He is a very outgoing kid, very good looking kid. I mean, of course, everybody says that about their kids, but he's very outgoing and he's into sales. He loves, you know, he loves to talk to people, doesn't know a stranger. He was flying from back and forth to Hawaii when he was 13 years old, you know, and just doing things like that. So, um, you know, from Oklahoma. Um, and, um, but he, um, we did an intervention on him when he was right off, you know, we started seeing signs 
And his mother and I were separate, you know, divorced most of his life, but we were, as far as he was concerned, we, we definitely had a tight unit as far as what's the best for him. And uh, so we were in, we were basically working together on that. She kind of had a plan that she wanted to try and that wasn't working. And finally my ex-father-in-law, he called me up and he said, I'm throwing in the towel. You know, what do you, you know, I'm going to, we got to, what's your suggestion? And I said, well, I've got some alternatives here, but you know, you're going to have to, we're going to have to work together on this. And, and um, you know, uh, I, you know, we ended up intervening on him and he was looking at, uh, he didn't really have a drug problem. He was just had a behavior problem and he'd gotten himself into trouble and it was innocent enough where he had went out and, you know, him and a kid were out joyriding and they just pulling a prank on people and did vent and ended up doing some property damage and got in trouble. But it was just enough to kind of put enough pressure on him to, uh, to where we had leverage. In other words, you know, you're going to have to figure out, change your ways, or we're going to just go ahead and let the authorities do their thing with you. And then, you know, because we're not going to go through this, we will help you. And, um, so I was fortunate enough to be able to get him into, uh, a program, but I, we jumped on it because I knew this is going to go on for about 10 years, right. Or 10 to 15 years. And who knows about, um, um, you know, incarceration, what kind of problems, legal fees, fines, just the whole, I could see it coming. And I said, I'm going to go ahead and try to stop this. Right. And so we were able to get him into a program and then he came to live with me and uh, we were still doing counseling with them and working with them. So, um, again, this is a very long, I'm giving my own example because I, I just, because I knew how this was going to go, mm-hmm. you know, I just knew. So, um, uh, we, we, we did an intervention on him at 14. He was able to get, I don't know, like things figured out. I think it took him, we, we, we he went to about a three month program and then he, uh, came out and he lived with me and he still did some, you know, uh, working with counselors and mentors and things like that. And I could really tell a difference about a year later when he finally, um, you know, I could just tell his whole demeanor had changed and he had, he'd found people that, you know, that were mentors to him that were really positive influences that he would tell me about him. I talked to Tim today and this is what Tim said. And, you know, I knew Tim and I knew Tim was a great guy. And I'm thinking, okay, he's listening to Tim. I even figured out I laugh because I tell him, you know, how'd you get your son to listen to what you say? You know, I'm like, I always tell my friend to tell him. Right. <laughs> I told him he was not listening. So I tell my friend and then he would say, you know what so-and-so said today? And I'm like, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, but anyway, I, again, long answer, but I, immediately you, an inter- there's all forms of intervention. So as far as even talking to me, I mean, you could sit down and, I, I, I want to back up a minute, and, and, and there's one thing that I want to express that's very important that parents can do. You want to make it safe for your kids to come and talk to you, Definitely. right? You want to make them know that they can come and talk to you and that you will help them, you know, and, you know, say, come and talk to me. And just like my youngest, I tell them, look, if you, you know, we ask you a question, I want you to tell me the truth. You tell me the truth. You know, there's probably not going to be some consequences to it too much. If, if you know, I may not, I'll do my best not to get mad. <laughs> but I mean, you tell me, I want you to feel like you could, I don't want you to be hiding things from me. Because if, you know, if you're, they start hiding things from you, you're going to know they're going to start being critical. They're going to start being, 
like very moody. They're going to be like, you're, oh, they hate you. That's always signs that there's something under the covers that they don't want you to see. Right. It's a guarantee. So you've got to get in there and find out what's going on and make it safe for them to talk to you to where, you know, they could open up to you and they can come to you. And then uh, you'll just, and you'll do your best to not react to it and then work it out to say, okay, well, how could we have done this better? Like if I go and ask my son, something happened at school today, I say, you know, but anything happened at school today? And I already know the answer because I already got the phone call. They'll right. say, well, no, it was fine. I'm like, okay, so you didn't have a thing with blah, blah, blah. And go, oh, yeah, I did. Oh, okay. So, all right, well, tell me about that. Mm-hmm. And then we'll talk about, he'll tell me what happened. And I'll say, so how could you have done that better? Mm-hmm. You know, how could you have done that better? And he'll tell me, he'll say, well, I could have done this. And yeah, you're right. I said, okay, so you're not going to let that happen again, right? And he'll say, no, and that'll be the end of it right then. And then, but at the end, if it comes back and it happens again, then it's be like, hey, we're going to have another conversation. <laughs> it's going to be like, oh, here we are again. So now we're at, you know, now, you know, then we might give him one more chance. But the third time we've tried it and we're going to probably be lowering the boom on him a little bit. <laughs> right, <that's laughs> we've given you an opportunity to think about what you can do to not let that happen again. So, you know. Anyway, so that's, but I, I always give them, you know, I want, I, I want to express that to people, make it feel where they can, they, they need to have somebody that they can go to, whether it's you or whether it's somebody, you know, maybe it's an aunt or maybe it's somebody else or somebody they can go to that's not going to tolerate it, you know, not going to be accepting of it, not going to make excuses for them, but they can feel safe about where they can, they can they'll talk to that person. Right. So, you know. That's that's one thing. Anyway, so that that is that's a very good point. One thing that you said, two things that I want to talk about. Um, one thing that you said is the signs that you know if they start to hide things or they become hostile or or things, then you know that your kids are keeping secrets, and that could be about drugs or or anything really. Um, what are other signs that parents should look for, or siblings should even look for? to kind of give you an indication like something's being hidden or, or they're dealing with something or there's something bothering them on the inside, like even behaviorally, if it's not drugs or alcohol. Well, yeah. I mean, they start being withdrawn. They start separating themselves from what they normally do. Uh, they, that's what they, that's the first indication. The first for me is like when they're, when they kind of lash out at, you know, the first the response that we have is like, like, you know, I say something to you, I say, Katie, and, you know, why, why are you calling me today? And you're like, and your first thing is like, well, what did I do? Mm-hmm. Well, the truth is you didn't do anything, you know, mm-hmm. and her smile at me. Well, I, you know, what's, what's the truth? It's with me. You're, you're, but you're, a person's first thought is, what did I do? And you get on the defensive. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean you want to be on the offensive, but you got to realize there's something going on with that person. Mm-hmm. We need to have a talk. You know, we need to sit down. Why are you? Why? Where? Where's that coming from? What? What? What do you mean? Where's that coming from? What, what's What's happening here that I don't know? You know, and, and it's kind of a, like it, it's a kind of an art form to be able to like pull it out of them without accusing them. Because you know, <laughs> you know, it's it's a very it's very got to be very careful not to really say, well, what did you do? Well, you know, you're going to get an automatic nothing. You know, they're going to say nothing. I didn't do anything. What are you talking about? 
well, is there anything that might have could have happened? Well, I just don't understand, you know, why this is going on. I mean, I, I really would like figuring out a way to where you can talk to them without necessarily pointing the finger at them, you know, where they could feel like, okay, I could go ahead and talk about this. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 I'll tell you about a kid once that we sat down and tried to talk to this kid. He was 25 years old, been living at his parents' house for four years and on the couch and uh, Middle Eastern family from, uh, from Afghanistan, I think. But anyway, we'd sit down and talk to him and he just jumps up and is like, just dropping F-bombs everywhere. Just like totally like, oh, I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy. So I took him in the other room and I said, I sat him down. I said, look, man, I just, I'm just here to try to help your family. You know, I'm here. They don't know what to do. You know, they're, you know, they're kind of messed up. And then they'll say, oh yeah, they're all messed up. And well, you know, they're messed up because of what's going on in their house. Right. Because they've got somebody here that's living in their house, you, know, <laughs> you <laughs> living in their house on their couch and it's just not going well. They don't know what to do. And, and well, then the kid up in, ended up like he just blew out of the house and just said, you know, I'm not doing anything. And he left. And well, they told the parents, I said, this is where you pack up all the stuff and you set it out on the front porch. You tell him, well, he's going to live in his car. I said, yeah, he's going to live in his car. Said, well, he doesn't have any money. Well, yeah, he doesn't have any money. Well, he'll be coming back pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Well, he starts calling the parents. And then I said, they were like, I said, finally, just give him my number, have him call me. Well, he would talk to me. And I said, uh, I said, what do you, I said, what do you want me to do, man? Your parents are done. They're, they're you know, they're, they're tired of putting up with this, man. They're done. So what do you want me to do? So I want you to tell them that I need four more days. I said, you need four more days. I said, what do you mean? You need, what are you going to do in four days? Well, I got to do this. I got to type up my resume. I got to do that. I, I said, well, you know, I said, just want to point something out. You've been here for four years, <laughs> four days, you know, and, uh, and he said, well, you need to tell him I don't do drugs. I said, well, I'm going to have a hard time even, you know, but as far as I'm concerned about them letting, trying to convince them to let you back in the house. I have a 29 year, I have a son that's your age. And the first time that he said to me, what you just, I just witnessed you saying to your parents, he would no longer have to worry about living in my house just for that alone, not including the drugs. I said, I would not put up with it. You would not be living in my house. So, you know, I don't know what to say. There's no, you know, you, you had a room and board from people that were feeding you and clothing you and you chose to speak to them in a manner that is very unbecoming of loving parents. So I don't know what to do for you about that. <laughs> Whether you do drugs or not is irrelevant because I would throw you out so fast you'd make your head spin. You know, that's not okay. So what else do you want me to tell them? Because <laughs> I can't tell them that. Well, after about four days, he got hungry enough and tired enough. He finally called me and said, well, I'm down here at such and such place. Can you come get me and let's go? And I said, okay, I'll come get you. And mm-hmm. We went. But people get into this thing about, well, what did I do? Well, you didn't do anything. They have to own their own relationship. And, you know, and the truth is, is when you start seeing that, just like my my son, I said, I know you're not tell, talk, treat you don't treat your friends the way you're trying to treat me. Because mm-hmm. if you if you were my friend and you talked to me that way, I'd probably in back in the day I'd punch you in the face. You wouldn't be my friend anymore. Okay. You, you wouldn't be you 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 can't talk to your friends that way. And here you are talking to your parents that way. No, mm-hmm. no, that's not going to cut it, man. I mean, it, but you know, later on we would talk 
He would call me up. He'd have a situation at school with a kid. And so, well, how do you, and so, and I would do my best not to evaluate for him and say, this is what you should do. Right. I would try not to, you know, or invalidate him or evaluate what he, you know, well, you know, I try to give him two or three options of a way to think about how to handle it. What do you think you could do about it? Do you think you could go talk to your coach about it to see if he could talk to the kid or do you think you could go talk to the kid directly? Or do you think you're just going to have to square off with him and, and get it settled one way or the other? You know, I mean, you know, you can't run around here and just let this happen to you. What do you, I mean, not that you would want to do that as a first line. You always want to try to talk to somebody first, but, you know, or maybe stay away from them, but, uh, you know, but and he, we would talk through it. And so anyway, that's, I can't get off on tangents here. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's perfect because you can always, the more you talk, the more nuggets you're dropping and the more wisdom that people are getting from this. Um, what does a successful intervention look like? Or what does, for, for those who may not know, what does an intervention look like? And is it different for different stages of how far gone your loved one may be? Um, there are different types of interventions. That the, you know, there's, uh, there's, the, there's the Johnson model of intervention, which is what I tend to use most of the time. There's also the invitation type of intervention where you basically let the person know that you're coming and that you're going to, you know, meet me at the house at three o'clock and I want to talk to you. Um, that the invitation type. Now I've had to kind of get into the intervention where, you know, just show up and the person there, you're there and just, you know, look at the TV show. And it's a lot like that. It's a little bit more, not obviously we're not going, we try not to have drama, but you know, it's a very emotional situation, but, uh, you know, you want to come from the heart. You want to come from love and care and, and just, you know, tell the person how much they mean to you. Because the truth is, is that if the family didn't care, they wouldn't go to all this much effort. But I'm going to cover a couple of things as far as an intervention, as far as the components of an intervention. I always talk about there's five parts to an intervention. One is the planning stage. Well, you start planning it out. You start figuring out, okay, you know, you know, people call me all the time. Well, I, my, my, my brother's using drugs. I don't know what to do, you know, and I start asking questions about, well, you know, what type of, what type of drugs is important, but it's not the most, one of the most important things. Cause we're going to get to the bottom of that as a matter of course, but just kind of what's going on. Like, is he working? Does he have a family? Is he married? He's got kids. You know, has he tried to stop using drugs? Has he ever expressed interest in stopping using drugs before? Um, you know, and I get that all that information. And then do you have a treatment program picked out? Well, no, 99.9% of the time they don't. So we start, well, that's the first thing we need to do is figure out where we can go for treatment because we don't want to go and try to do an intervention with no place for him to go. Because as soon as we get his agreement, we need to be taking him right into the facility. We don't wait till next week or, you know, we, we, as soon as they, we agree, they go. I like to be gone within 30 minutes of them getting, saying yes. Oh, wow. So we plan it out to where it's like that, you know? So, um, so we, so you do the planning stage, who's going to be involved, where it's going to be, when it's going to be things like that. So once you kind of plan out, let's say 
that I had a family in South Carolina that wanted me to be doing intervention next Tuesday. And, you know, and I got Uncle Bill and, you know, and Aunt Jenny and, you know, mom and dad and grandpa and grandma and, and brother and sisters and things. I got to get all them people, all those folks on board with doing this intervention. You know, we got to make sure that they can be there. You know, what day works best, what time, what's the schedule. And then I also look at the plane flights of when it's, you know, when I can fly in and when I can fly out. Because I like to do the intervention about two to three hours before I have to leave for the airport. Right. So, you know, if I have to drive an hour to the airport, then I got to figure that in. Um, so then we start preparing. Once we start planning it, we figure out those things. Then we start preparing it. That's the second part. And, you know, we start writing letters. We start, you know, I start training the family on what to expect. You know, we list out all the objections this person is going to have. We have any problems that may arise. We basically just handle anything that could come up that would prevent this person from going, right? Any reasons why? Well, he won't go because of his job or he won't go because of, you know, this or that. Okay, well, let's, let's handle that, right? So, um, and then we execute. Well, the planning, preparation, then execution the day of. It's Tuesday at 10 o'clock in the morning. We're going to do the intervention. You know, Aunt Jenny's going to go in there first and see it, make sure that he's awake and he's up and around. And then we're all going to trail in the house and we're going to sometimes get him set in a certain area of the house to where he's in the corner and, you know, kind of like Uncle Bill and Cousin Jake are by each door. <laughs> we're going to sit down and talk to him. Because I, I always tell people, look, if this were my family and I was going to do an intervention, on somebody that I really was literally a life and death situation, you know, the person may end up not going, but they're going to understand the consequences of that decision before they leave, mm -hmm. you know, and we, if we have to have a, we're going to have a discussion. You're not just going to blow me off. You're going to listen to me. I'm going to, you know, with respect and hopefully, you know, I'll get that in return, but uh, you know, uh, and I've had people that, Literally, it was knocked down dragouts. I'm talking one Dominican Republican family from New Jersey. I'm telling you, eight hours. We started at noon, eight o'clock that night. The guy finally agreed, and they punched holes in the wall and wrestled around. And it was, and the guy finally agreed. And uh, what I'm witnessing through the whole thing was that the guy, the, the addict, was uh, special forces in the military. Oh, he okay. never did anything for his two brothers. They he would they would try to keep him from leaving, and they would hold him, and he would push him, and they would you know fall downstairs, and you know rip banisters off the stairwells, and uh, you know and stuff like that. But he never did like doubled up his fist and tried to do any you know do like hurt it. And uh, and finally at eight o'clock that night, he agreed to go. There's, of course, there's no flights out. We have to get a flight the next morning. He said, I'm going to go home. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is never going to happen. Well, he came back. And he came back and picked me up and drove me to the airport the next day, the guy. And, uh, and he went into a long-term program. I, you know, another one, um, a girl, a Spanish family up in, uh, in California. And they, it's like 12 of them. And then they just, this girl was like putting up a fight. And they finally got her in. And, uh, you know, we got her in the car and drove her up to the, uh, facility and, and she fought boy it was like but about after being at the facility for about 10 days she wrote one of the most amazing success stories of thanking her family for for doing that for her because had they not fought through that moment 
she would have been out using, she was using heroin and methamphetamine. Oh my goodness. IV. So, and uh, so, but they, the family was like ready and they were like, you know, we're going to fight through this. And I finally got, of course, I was the bad guy during the whole commotion and everything. I was the, the, the green, I mean, I, I don't want to be, you know, I say it jokingly because, you know, I, but I was not the, she was, I was not her favorite, favorite person. Right. <laughs> she called me some names and stuff. And I said, well, I'm obviously not the guy that's going to take her to the facility. You know, so I said, I need somebody that's going to drive this girl. And the head of uncle show up and he was also her godfather. And I said, are you the guy? And he said, I, she is going to that, like with all the intention in the world, she's going. And I said, okay. And he literally, literally locked the car doors where she couldn't open them from the inside. And, you know, once she got in though, she was fine. But, um, uh, I mean, you, we, she walked herself out of the house and got into the car on her own. Yeah, it wasn't, but they had to fight through that whole thing. Um, to, you know, getting her, she wanted to get help. She didn't want to be on drugs, but she wanted to go see her friend one last time. And they're like, no, of course the friend was a drug user anyway. So you get planning, preparation, execution, and then the introduction of the consequences, like you pre-plan this out beforehand, you decide if the person says no, what, what's the consequences of that? That's the hard part. That's the hard part. And you introduce the consequences to them. Okay, well, you know, if you choose not to get help, then, you know, I can't continue to live this life like this. I mean, I'll have to make a decision. You always put it like, I'll have to make a decision based off of your decision. Because they'll want to say, oh, you're making me. Well, I, you know what? The truth is, is you're making me do something I don't want to do right now. I, you're making me put up with some drug, active drug use in my house. Or, you know, I don't want to do that. So you're making me do something I don't want to do. So I'm going to stop doing that right now. And, you know, you're going to be on your own. And a lot of times addicts will say, I want you to leave me alone. And I understand it. Well, that's going to happen right now. It's going to happen more so right now than it ever has in your life. You're going to be left alone to do whatever you want to do. And then the hard part is actually carrying the fifth part. The fifth part is carrying out those consequences. And that's the hard part because, and I spent a lot of time on the consequences because the truth is, is that if you can't hold your ground, you're actually going to make it worse. You're, you will, the, the person will get worse. If you don't hold your ground on the consequences that you implement, they will get worse. There's no question about it. So you need to put it out there to where the consequences that they, you know, are going to experience have to be worse or more, more gruesome than them going to get help. Mm-hmm. Or they're never going to go get help. And I mean, you, it, that, like for me, I was going to prison. I'm not, and I was so close to going to, I mean, literally if had I not gone into rehab, the marshals would have picked me up and take me to federal prison. That's where I was going. And so I thought, I think I'll go to rehab instead. <laughs> that, seems like a, that seems like a better idea. <laughs> yeah. I had the presence of mind to go. And you know, the funny part about it is that the guy at the prosecutor told me two weeks prior to that, that if you do this again, I'm going to put you in prison. You have violated three times. I, I had one of those good old boy deals that I made with him without an attorney that, you know, shook his hand. I was smart enough to go in there and negotiate this thing down to next to nothing. 
And then I was stupid enough to keep violating it. And he got, then he was, the prosecutor was not happy with me. He was mad. And he said, the next, if I see you in my courtroom again, you are going from here straight to prison. That's where you're going. And so I went back over and my parents tried to get me to go to rehab at that time. And I uh, didn't, or said no. And I said all the usual answers that I hear a gazillion times. And I, uh, then I, about two weeks later, I'm like, I'm going to take a drug test the next day. And I knew I was going to fail. And I go to my dad's house and I said, dad, I'm going to take a drug test tomorrow. And I'm going to fail it. And he was like, about to faint. He's like, they just told you what, what do you mean? And I said, I know. I said, I, maybe I, maybe I gotta go. Maybe I'm, maybe it's my time to go. And he said, so we worked out a plan to where I would go take the drug test and get there right before they closed the next day. And then I would skip and That was on a Saturday night. So they weren't going to get the results back till Monday morning. And then by that time I would be in rehab. <laughs> that was smart. So I was standing just about that far ahead of the game. And then my, then luckily my probation officer was a great guy. And he, he let me, you know, but that, that was the pressure. That was the consequence. The consequence was for me, didn't even come from my family. It came from the legal system. A lot of times we don't have that. You know, there's, we get, we get into, so those are the five parts of an intervention that there's three things that you need to be successful. One is the parent, the person wants to change their life. They don't like their life. They're not happy. They're miserable. And most addicts are addicts are driven by pain and hopelessness. The second thing is the threat of a loss of a family member. Like, you know, the guy goes to the bar every night or vice versa and the guy, you know, they say, you know what, if you don't stop doing that, come home and help me with these kids. I'm going to, I'm leaving. Well, then they don't pay any attention. And finally said, you know what, I'm packing up, I'm out. And then the person decides, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to change because they don't want to lose. They really don't want to lose their family. They, their family means a lot to them. Or you have, you know, and I've had that where there's parents or a mom or a dad or, or someone that's really, really close. And that, that addict doesn't want to lose that relationship. As soon as it starts going away, they're going to change. They're going to like, you know what? And so there's those, that's the second thing. And the third thing is what we call environmental pressure. The things in the environment, they're going to force the person into treatment or do something to make like me. I had all three of those things, but I still wasn't enough to make me decide to go into rehab. And, you know, so I, the third thing. And so if we don't have the third thing, sometimes we have to create that. I had a, I'll give you an example. I had a kid that was in uh, Arkansas and great family. And he came over to the intervention. It, it was, you know, drunk and he wouldn't sit down and listen. We, we, we tried, we, uh, of course you, you don't want the person to be under the influence of anything or less likely to be under the influence of things at the time of the intervention, especially with drugs like methamphetamine or something like that, but, or alcohol, but, uh, you know, this was on, it, we just had to do the best we could with the timing that we had. And he wouldn't sit down and talk. He basically, you know, and he even threatened. He's like, I'm going to fight you. And I'm like, you know, I mean, just the fact that he said, I'm going to fight you meant that he probably wasn't going to fight me. I mean, right. most people that are going to do that. They just do it. <laughs> At least, yeah. So I, I, he, anyway, he got in the car and he took off and his mom's like, well, I can't, I'd already talked to him. I said, what if he drives down the road drinking? What are you going to do about that? I mean, we have a responsibility to the community to not let our loved ones drive down the street drinking 
for fear they, they may run over somebody and kill them. She called the police. And then I, when the police showed up, I took a picture of the car, the cop car in the driveway, and she sent it to him. And the kid got mad and turned around and came back. Well, then the cops, you know, <laughs> arrested him. Right. And the next day, he was in a completely different mindset. I went in to see him in jail, and I said, oh, so now we're going to have this conversation that we were going to have yesterday. And he goes, yeah. And he was a very nice kid. <laughs> you know, I said, I, I could probably get you out of this, but you're going to have to go into a treatment program with me. Mm-hmm. Other than that, you're going to have to. He said, yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I do. You know, he was. He agreed, and we drove in. He was a nice kid. But the day before, not so much. So we were able to have that pressure applied because and a lot of families have a hard time with that. So those are the three things. There's five parts, the three things that you need to be successful. And so, again, another long answer for you. <laughs> no, that, that's the perfect answer because I think that's uh, especially if there's someone listening or watching right now and they are dealing with a loved one who is addicted to something or uh-huh. even like you said has a behavioral issue that is going to lead them down the wrong path yeah it really takes a lot of courage to get over that fear of okay well if i put them out what's going to happen well if i'm not there you know if i let them walk away if my consequences are you can't stay under this roof kind of thing that that is a lot for a family to decide and stick to yeah well I always try to get you know you want to offer the person some hope mm -hmm. and some help I didn't have any faith in the treatment industry at all when I would you know you were I'm a reasonably intelligent I was doing some very stupid things but a reasonably intelligent person you know even when I and you know I didn't have any faith in counselors or you know for whatever reason, not that people weren't trying, but for whatever reason, I didn't have any faith. And so I, once I realized that, uh, you know, I, when I, you can offer the person some hope that there's things can be different then they're more likely. So you always want to give the person a solution, you know, set them down and, and hopefully in an organized fashion to where it's not going to be, you know, it's going to be very, emotional as it is but you don't want to react to that person it's okay to get up you know you're going to be sad and even even get mad but if you get out of control mad because you know the person's going to try to push your buttons you get out of control mad then now they're in control simply because you've lost your cool you know and i can let you know hey i'm i'm not happy about this i'm very mad but if i lose control of my anger then then that, that puts that other person in the driver's seat because they're going to, you know, if they're defensive, they're going to, we want to melt their heart. We want them to get them to see, you know, I mean, if we do it right, most of the time the person will say, yeah, you know what, you're right. I, I, you know, they, and they'll thank you for doing it. So, right. uh, but, uh, it, it, but it is tough, you know, but you really have, you know, that's what I tell families. You got two decisions. You, you got two choices. Either A, you continue to live with it, or B, you decide not to live with it. You know, and that's, it, it. that's, that's the, there's no, you know, yeah. and uh, but I've had no people that have found their loved ones dead in the house. 
Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, they literally might have, and, and two of them, I went to a very small school and I know two of them that went to high school, I went to high school with them, mm-hmm. you know? So you're, it's like you said earlier, you're going to love them to death and you could, you literally could love them to death. Right. So exactly. It, it is, it, it's, it's not easy. It's, it, you know, it's, you know, it's heck of a lot easier to say than it is to do, but it really is. You've got to separate yourself from it. You can't let yourself be controlled by the addiction, you know? Right. Exactly. And, and it is a, a choice that the entire family has to make together and stand by. Um, just a couple more questions for you, Bobby. I thank you for spending the time with us uh, so far. Um during this time, this past year, where we have all been locked down and quarantined and, and sheltering in place and people have not been able to really uh, socialize as much or get out, have you seen an increase in addiction or the need for it? Or have people called you more for interventions as a result of what we've all been going through uh, with COVID or what, what has happened? What have you seen change just from that alone? I have seen um, people when it first happened, you know, for about six weeks, you know, the phones were not ringing mm-hmm. much at all. And, and uh, I was even starting to work out how to do virtual, uh, you know, online classes or sober coaching or, or, and things of that nature. And then the phone started ringing again. And in about end of May, beginning of June, and I probably had as much business that year as I did the year before, last year as I did the year before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I would even go out into certain places. And I think there was one or two families that was even concerned about, you know, I, I have to be, my wife's work, they require her to wear masks and gloves even out from work because they don't want to bring any you know, and then they have to do certain things when they once they enter the building where she works, just to they just don't want to be any, you know, issues with COVID. But uh, you know, most people are pretty cautious. But uh, uh, most of these families, that was the least of their concerns when they we, we we would go out to help their loved ones. They were like, you know, we just need you to come in and you know and help us. And so that's what I would notice that, that this was actually the number one issue. So yeah, there for a minute it actually did have an effect, but after that, it just, and, and the drug use and the alcohol use is gone. I had a friend of mine that I, a friend of mine, she's a statistician or not a professional statistician, but she likes to research this stuff. Mm-hmm. And she had a graph on Facebook the other day that talked about the opioid deaths that have just, the opioid deaths are like on a steep vertical uh, since the COVID hit, you know, and you have the bars are, you know, you have, uh, you know, Uber, well, they, you have the home delivery of alcohol, home delivery of marijuana, you know, churches are closed. I mean, this is like weird. I'm like, this is like, this is like you talk about utopia. I've heard utopia. Oh, we're good. We can go and we can have our marijuana delivered, but we can't go to church. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. It yeah. makes it easy to get in trouble. Yeah. It makes it easy to, do, to really get in trouble. Yeah. That that is that that is interesting that that's the state, but it is it's interesting that people still, in spite of, started calling and, and really still trying to get that help, which showed you, I guess, how desperately people needed 
Yeah, well, you know, one thing about it is there for a while, um, you couldn't have one other restrictive thing about treatment was they couldn't, you know, the states were like, kind of like, um, you know, geographically restricted because, you know, I, I have a facility in Louisiana I work with. They couldn't take anybody outside of Louisiana. Oh. Or if somebody was from Louisiana and, and there was different hotspots that were happening and like I was having, you know, a hot spot of New York and New Jersey. And guess where? So I get sent. <laughs> right <laughs> in the, I get to go right into, you know, and I would have to fill out the, all the paperwork and everything. And, uh, but, I, you know, I was considered an essential worker. But uh, right. so, so that was also limiting because people would call in from South Carolina wanting to go to a facility in Texas and they couldn't do it because of the restrictions that were in place. Mm -hmm. So in all the facilities there where they're at, maybe they were full or something. So it was really like, we're like, what the heck? You know, the funny part about it was too, is that a couple of the programs I work with, they, they, um, they saw an increase when it first happened. They saw an increase of admissions because a lot of these were people from people that they had been working with for a few weeks that they realized, wait a minute, the drug because the drug supply was actually affected by the supply chain of the drugs was affected by COVID too. Oh, it was right. all shut down, and people were starting; they weren't able to get their drugs, so they're like, "Wait a minute, I'm going to go into treatment instead." So mm -hmm. then that that kind of subsided and it went the other way. But, so it was really fun. Yeah. yeah, that that is. Yeah, I guess you never thought about it that way. But yeah, it would limit the ability for it to come in, too, because everything was kind of everything was different. Yeah. So, yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. So. Bobby, tell us how people can get help or how can they get in touch with you and what resources you have that if anybody listening and watching right now get you your pen and your paper um, because this is important and this is life or death. So Bobby, just whatever you have, just share away. We'll put everything in the show notes and we will have links to everything as well. But, you know, if you've written any books, anything that you have that can help someone, feel free. Thank you. I have a book called Secrets to Successful Recovery. It can be found on Amazon for it's Secrets to Successful Recovery, Bobby Newman. Basically, it's Secrets to Successful Successful Recovery, What They Don't Want You to Know About Addiction and Treatment, right? And it basically talks about the different things uh, involved with addiction. And, you know, it goes over quite a bit. It's only about, I think it's 68 pages long. So it's not like it's a, a novel or anything. It's a very easy read. I've had people, a lot of people that have read it, found it very helpful. It's short enough. People can, you could literally read it in one setting. Um, but uh, it's got a lot of very important information in there. And it talks about, you know, how a person becomes addicted. What's the three barriers that you over, to overcome that you, that you have to overcome to achieve permanent sobriety. And these are across the board barriers that people, professionals for decades have agreed to. Um, and then explains how to overcome those things. Um, and then it also talks about what successful people do. What I've learned in my journey as being, as being clean and, and looking around at others and what they do to be successful, even if they've had substance abuse problems or not, 
what do successful people do in life? And a lot of these things that are in the there are are what successful people do. And uh, you know, if an addict could apply the, some of these things, uh, you know, they would be really likely to overcome addiction. And then the other thing is what how to interact with a loved one after to get them to go to treatment, and also after they come home from treatment. You know, the things, the do's and don'ts. Uh, and then I also have a I have. A, 25 tips to a successful intervention, right? That I've taught, give to families to, to the, you know, if they feel like they want to try the intervention on their own, it's free. Uh, I have an intervention guide and then I also have an intervention, an online video course that people can learn. It's about, it's, and I do charge for that, for the video course, but I have a lot of, uh, you know, I have the 25 tips that's free. Uh, and, you know, I have, I'll be more than happy to, you know, if somebody wants to call and ask questions, um, you know, they can reach me at 866-989-4499, or they can go to my website at newmaninterventions.com, which is N-E-W-M-A-N interventions.com. So, and I'll send all that information over. So there's a lot of information on my website as well. So, that is wonderful. Thank, thank you so much for that. Everyone, you have heard it here. Take advantage of these resources and also um, reach out to Bobby. If you are going through something right now and your, or your family or loved one or friend, uh, even if it's not your situation, you know, share this information with someone you know uh, who may be dealing with this, whether it's youth or an adult. Uh, I think Bobby has shared, it can, it ranges. It can be anywhere from 11 or 12 to a 35 year old, but, but it's never too late. And that's the, the key to intervention is not to wait until it's too late. Right. And, and doing that, Bobby, is there anything like if there was just one thing that you would say to parents to sum up or anything that we didn't talk about that you want all parents or people who have a loved ones to know, is there any like parting words just to, to give that you'd like to share? I hear uh, there's depends on like the, the week and the latest, my latest experiences, but mm -hmm. generally I would say, Oh, he's, I didn't think much of it because it was just marijuana. Mm. And, you know, and I, Marijuana, to, again, I, I touch on that, and I'm not going to get into the fact of whether people, you know, the medicinal benefits. The truth is marijuana is medicinally beneficial for certain things, but it's not the anything that, with THC in it. THC is a psych psychoactive chemical. So there's actually components to it, like the cannabinoids in, THC in, in, in marijuana that could be for, it, for seizures and things like that. But, you know... Today's marijuana is not the same. And I've seen more and more kids, young people, early 20s that are truly going, developing psychiatric problems simply because they are from marijuana or even synthetic marijuana. So don't just blow it off. It's an issue, right? It can be, I got a family in California I just met with last week that their son's 25 years old and he's, he may, you know, I've had other families that have let it go and their kids may not ever be coming back to normal. So, um, and it's, and that's what the DEA agent, when I mentioned earlier, talked about, he said, you, that you will see the professors and scientists that he worked with and researchers said, you will see people starting to develop psychosis from the today's marijuana if the potency continues to go up. And that's not including the uh, chemicals they're spraying on it. 
So uh, um, the other thing is, is that, well, there's a bunch of stuff, actually. (laughs) 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 Offering somebody hope. I mean, dealing with an addict, I always ask them, well, are you happy? You know, they say, oh, I don't have a drug problem. I hear a lot. I don't have, okay, well, how's things going in your life? Oh, they'll always tell me, oh, they suck. Okay. Well, what would you like to change? And I find out because the addict, it may not be the drugs. The drugs are generally a solution to whatever problem they're experiencing, whether it be some emotional or physical trauma that they've experienced. So, all right, well, what would you like help with? Okay. Well, you know, I'd like to have, you know, uh, you know, this or that or anything. I mean, and I'd say, you know, well, if I could help you with that, would you be interested? And they'd say, yeah, I'd like you to help me with that. Okay, good. Well, I'm going to be, I'm going to help you, but you're going to need to help me. You know, what do you mean by that? Well, you're going to have to help me by, by showing that you're serious about this and you're going to have to make a commitment before I'm going to invest my time and energy. And I need you to know, you know, that I'm, I'm not, it's not just me coming to the table with some time and energy. You got to invest in yourself. So, and if they're not willing to invest in yourself and make a sacrifice, then the likelihood they're giving you a bunch of lip service is pretty high. So, you know, you say, anyway, I, I would have like probably another hour. <laughs> to go. <laughs> People can call me and they can ask me their specific questions, but uh, you know, anyway. <laughs> so. That sounds good to me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bobby, for, for joining us on the podcast and for sharing your wisdom and for sharing your story. Uh, We can't uh, thank you enough. And we will have all the information out there for people to to get in contact with you and to reach out and find out more or share it with someone that they love, even if it's not affecting you, if it's someone you know who needs it. So with that said, we appreciate you and thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.